I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, the good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like you know grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico, and I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. This week we have a pretty cool um, episode. We're not promoting anyone's book, but we're just going to talk to Derek Ford again um, about uh, some research we did on Christians in the DPRK. Um, you can uh, catch that interview uh, in a few minutes, but first we have some things to do, some housekeeping, if you will. Gotta keep um, that house. Gotta keep that house nice and clean, um, I guess. I don't, or maybe dirty. I don't know which one. Well, uh, today is ooh, July 5th, and you're listening to this probably not on July. Well, you're definitely not listening to it on July 5th. Anyway, some things happened today that we want to highlight really quick just to give a quick signal boost to. Um, uh, yeah, our friends over at the Friendly Fire Collective in Philadelphia had quite the day. Um I don't know if you saw it on Twitter. You probably did because you probably can't miss it. Um, but there was a big Occupy ICE thing in Philadelphia, and ICE was indeed occupied um, for like two days. Is that right, Dean? I think yeah, it was two I think days. so. Two or three, something like that. They had an yeah. encampment and everything. Right. It was significant. Um, and uh, a lot of people were there. PSL was there. A bunch of DSA people were there. You know, all the, all the people. Uh, Friendly Fire was there too, though, and that was pretty cool. Um, they, uh, Sung was tweeting about kind of their actions there. They did sort of an exorcism of ice, which is pretty good. Yeah. I love that. I like that a lot. Uh, <laughs> um, they, you know, did prayer stuff and all kinds of that good Christian leftist stuff that you can expect from them. They also, uh, th- like they helped to organize it, which I think is important to mention right. too. Um, yeah. it wouldn't have happened without them. So kudos to them. Yeah, for sure. I think I first sort of like uh, caught a glimpse of like what was happening over there when Haysung was uh, sort of like frantically tweeting for other Christians to come and like stand there with them. Yeah. Um, he had a lot of like uh, a lot of pretty impassioned tweets that I thought were good from the encampment. Haysung tweets: "This is literally why Jesus died for the liberation of the people. Our religion is built on the blood of martyrs. Liberation looks like something, and it has a cost. If your Philly, in this case, churches aren't here." Your churches aren't following Jesus. Hashtag Occupy Ice PHL, uh, which is strongly worded, but I think pretty good. I mean, I think that's important that uh, Christians, uh, you know, progressive Christians especially, talk a big game about ice, but maybe they should have showed up a little bit more. I mean, maybe they did, but uh, maybe more of them should have came, you know? Like, it seems kind <laughs> of crazy that every single Christian in the entire city, like, wasn't there. But um, 
kind of an interesting thing. My favorite tweet from Sung from uh, the day, though, is a picture of a blown-up uh, pool toy uh, unicorn, and the tweet says, This blow-up unicorn is bolder and more useful to the occupation than the so-called progressive Christians of Philly. <laughs> <laughs> Shots fired. <laughs> Pretty good. Yeah, really good for a lot of reasons. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, we should... We- we should also mention like uh, a number of uh, members of the Friendly Fire Collective um, got arrested, and there's some pretty powerful uh, images and um, just reflections and realities, I think, that come out of that, uh, which are pretty troubling. Um, there's one photo that came out of one of them being arrested holding a rosary, and uh, Sung mentioned later that the cops like crushed it, and I don't know. There's like a real kind of, you know, like the cops don't care about your devotions. I think that's really important uh, to kind of keep on mentioning for Christians who are, I don't know, like always uh, holding in things like praying or like uh, especially praying the rosary, rosary in like traditionalist Catholic settings. Like it's important to keep reminding them that like cops aren't going to defend that right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So um, I guess just keep an eye on our Twitter and we'll announce it, I guess, when it comes. But we're going to try to make sure we help these folks materially in some way. So uh, just keep an eye and ear out for that kind of thing yeah i know there's a venmo that um Sung has been tweeting out so maybe find that and we'll try to find if there are any other efforts there's like legal and medical bills for sure so we'll figure that out well before we just move right on to derek um even though we should uh <laughs> we do have a few itunes reviews and we haven't been reading them the last few weeks so we saved them up we hit them under a bushel and now it's time to let those itunes reviews shine hide them under a bushel no no don't let Satan blow these out. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we have a few that are pretty cool. Uh, anyways, the first one is called Good Transitions, 5 to 5 Stars. Not expecting to see that, but there it is. Yeah, anyways, it's weird to just like lie right off the bat, but I appreciate it. Yeah, it is nice. Uh, this user writes, So I've been a dedicated listener to this podcast for basically a year. Ugh. It's followed that's me like through the whole podcast. Yeah, that's basically all of it. Uh, it's followed me through political transitions as I quote quote radicalized quote quote and became active in political work. It's followed me through religious transitions from my Catholicism to Episcopalianism. Though all these transitions, I can usually count on good, casual yet serious lefty, lefty Christian content to both affirm and challenge what it means to be a lefty Christian every Friday. And you learn with them. They're still going through the process of learning themselves, and that's been fun. Thanks, Matt and Dean, for the quality content and the good slash bad transitions. Joke's on you. I stopped learning a long time ago. <laughs> we know it all now. Yeah. It's yeah. all just recycling. Just yeah, regurgitating that's, more that's like right. it. Reduce, reuse, recycle this content. Uh, cool. <laughs> Thank you for those nice words. And uh, we, we're just trying really hard to get those transitions right. Uh, okay, uh, another user writes, the best show, five to five stars. Hey, y'all, want to listen to the best show on iTunes? Well, this probably isn't it. <laughs> but it's the best one I listen to. You guys are awesome. You really helped me shape. You've really helped me to shape in my head what it means to be a Christian and a leftist. I'd like to hear some more theology talk from you guys, even though you've said you aren't qualified. Just keep up the good work, comrades. Uh, okay, here's some quick theology talk. Man, isn't consubstantiation weird? Yeah, isn't it weird that there's three people, but they're one person, or three persons, but they're one people? Hey, Dean, do you think that Jesus proceeds from the Father? Uh, well, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last, so it really <laughs> kind of depends which one you mention first. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> good. Never taken that one into consideration. All right, great. Theology talk, done. Uh, great. <laughs> uh, another user writes, 
it's late five to five stars that's cool uh and this person just right writes uh you guys are great thanks youtube <laughs> <laughs> uh just listening to it late at night that's nice <laughs> yeah okay cool uh, and then uh, we have one more. This one's called, I'm not even a Christian, but I love this, five to five stars. I That's cool. I mean, mm. I find that really hard to believe, but I mean, <laughs> I don't know. That's fine. That's good. I mean, you don't have to be a Christian to love this podcast. It just seems like crazy, but whatever. Uh, yeah, anyways, I, I can get behind it. I appreciate it. Yeah, I can. I appreciate it. I just have a hard time conceptualizing it. Yeah, um, I hear you. <laughs> this user writes, uh, I really enjoy this podcast. I came into the Magnificast through their interview with George Shikare Omar which is now my favorite podcast episode of all time. That's pretty high praise. Uh, Both the hosts are so knowledgeable and easy to listen to uh, that each episode goes by really quickly for me. I always feel like I'm I'm in on the conversation with them whilst learning so much. I'm not a Christian, but this podcast has definitely given me a new view, respect of, for Christianity, and the role it has through the lens of communism as well as the role it could play. Such unique insight into the subjects touched on. Keep up the good work. I enjoy listening to each episode. Uh, that's really nice um, and cool. I mean, I feel like yeah. churches should be paying us to do this, you know? Like, we're bringing all these uh, people who are not Christians kind of, like, in a little that's bit. That's true. Really doing the work for them. Yeah. Where's Secret- that tithe money? Where's that tithe money? We're secret sensitive over here. <laughs> I guess the Patreon is kind of like our tithe. That's true. Don't So, 10% of your income to Patreon. Yeah. But maybe actually give it to somewhere else. That's good. <laughs> yeah, give it, give it to Heisung. Yeah, give it to Heisung. Oh my God! If you give it to us, we're gonna like make more, <laughs> make more stickers. <laughs> that is not oh, the boy. work of the Lord, I don't think. But uh, nah. it's not bad though. <laughs> uh, yeah. How else are you gonna stick it to the libs? Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah so good question. Anyway, How will uh, you do it? <laughs> well, we're going to do it this week by talking to Derek Ford, a real-life communist. Uh, he is a member of the Party for Socialism and Liberation, uh, which is a Marxist-Leninist party. You can and should find out more about that on the internet. And also, uh, we've done a few episodes in the past with Derek, so um, I encourage you to do that. You can also um, slowly track Derek's spiritual journey over the course of his Magnificast appearances, leading to an exciting conclusion. So if you haven't listened to the past ones, uh, spoiler alert, I guess, uh, it's it's really going to be kind of a bummer when you have to go back. But uh, great, um, great ending to that season, I think. All right, we'll throw it over to Derek. Uh, this week we're talking with Derek Ford about Christianity in the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, or as some people know it, I guess, North Korea, <laughs> and uh, we'll get into that in a minute. Um, but first, Derek, uh, what have you been up to? Uh, well, let's see. It's July 5th, um, so Saturday uh, I was at the um, March for Families, I think it was called, uh, here in Indianapolis with uh, the Answer Coalition and the PSL. And then the next day, we had a study group about imperialism, where we discussed uh, Lenin's book and uh, several other, you know, sort of related issues, talked about, like, how it helped us understand the dynamics of the march, how it could better help us understand and intervene in the, uh, you know, the the, uh, crisis, uh, the, the immigration crisis right now, by which I mean the crisis 
you know, perpetuated by ICE and the, the government, not an mm-hmm. immigration crisis. Um, and I'm also trying to move. So there's struggle in the political realm and in the personal realm. <laughs> that sounds pretty busy. How, how, what have you all been up to? Been starting to prep for some of my classes next uh, next semester. That's about the most exciting thing I've been up to. So I've been reading a lot about uh, uh, sort of like the history of racist housing policies, and that's a pretty crazy subject. So just been hitting the books. Not much else. What have you been doing, <laughs> Dean? Um, well, I live in Canada, and I'm an American. So on Canada Day on July 1st, uh, everybody was talking about how good Canada is. And then on the 4th of July, I watched the internet. All my friends talk about how good America is, and that was kind of weird, but uh, I did go see the fireworks, and my cats were not happy about those all night, but uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> Other than that, yeah. not not too much. Um, going to church sometimes, going to <laughs> meetings sometimes, reading books, <laughs> trying to keep up. Um, but yeah, pretty, pretty chilled out last couple weeks. Oh yeah, I, I did want to say that... Uh... This is my first time being on the Magnificast where I'm actually going to a church now. Oh, dang. Nice. <laughs> How's that been? It's great. You know, it's a Methodist church here uh, in Indiana, and we really like the reverend, and we really like the community, and we, yeah, we, we're just, re- we're really happy there. That's pretty yes. nice. Yeah, that's so cool. It- Kind of cool that we have like a uh, we have some receipts here of you uh, not going to church, thinking about going to church, and then starting to go, and now you're going. So we got it all. That's true. You can see that I follow through. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Right. I want. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Long history also of good communist Methodists. I was just reading about this guy in Canada, uh, Albert Edward Smith. This is his name at like the early 20th century. He was a Methodist pastor who set up all these like workers' churches and then eventually joined the Communist Party of Canada as a Christian because he felt like that was like a good extension of his pastoral ministry. So there you go. Good long tradition. Nice. Um, so you are the most uh, recurring guest on the show, Derek, uh, but we actually haven't had you on in kind of like a while. So I guess for people who may have started listening more recently uh, or don't know who you are, who are you? How would you introduce yourself? Well, I guess in this context... Um, I am an assistant professor of education studies at DePauw University, where I teach classes in philosophy and history of education. And I'm interested in basically uh, how educational philosophy and educational understandings can help us better understand social movements and uh, reimagine and sort of reconfigure the way that we exist in the world. And then uh, related to that is my work as a anti-war activist uh, with the Answer Coalition. And so it's through that uh, work that I've been to Korea and uh, been engaged in in, in the struggle in uh, Korea. And uh, I also have two dogs. One is named Felix. One is named Otis. Otis is new. We adopted him in February. And... Um, Otis is, uh, takes up a lot of time right now in my life, but I love him. <laughs> Felix and Otis good. is a good uh, band name. True. True. Neat. Um, well, the, the point of having you on here is, uh, to, for you to give us some of your insight, um, about your anti-war stuff, um, and also the experiences you've had in, uh, the DPRK. Um, so we'll get to the essays that we read in a little bit, but maybe we can just start it off talking about your experience. Um. Derek, you visited the DPRK and also 
the ROK, um, just all of Korea, actually. You've been there. Um, can you give us like a snapshot of what your involvement was in Korea? What made you want to go? And uh, what has your work there been like? Yeah, so the, the Answer Coalition has, since its inception in 2001, been involved in the struggle for, uh, for peace in Korea, which really means um, an end to the, to the Korean War that the United States started in uh, June of 1950. Um, and even you know, before the, those who were the founders of the Answer Coalition, you know, before the Answer Coalition existed, had, you know, even more, uh, you know, even longer ties to the, to the Korean struggle. And so in uh, 2016, I went as a representative of the Answer Coalition to the sixth international annual Korean forum, which was sponsored by a group, which was the movement for independent reunification and democracy in Korea. It was composed of former members of the Unified Progressive Party, which was disbanded by the Park Geun-hye government, a very reactionary government that was still ruling South Korea in 2016 when I was there. So I went for this conference and I met a lot of uh, peace activists, labor organizers, social activists of all stripes and conversed with them for a week, participated in actions, demonstrations, meetings. And then the later that same year, I went to Tokyo to uh, give a speech for the Answer Coalition again for the 60th anniversary of the founding of Korea University in Tokyo, which is a North Korean university there. There's several hundred thousand North Korean citizens who live in who live in Japan and have lived there for decades. They were brought over initially as slaves during Japanese colonialism and have remained there. And after the founding of North Korea, the North Korean government sent money over to establish a series of cultural and educational and other kinds of institutions to rebuild the Korean identity and preserve it there, including actually I visited a North Korean Buddhist monastery while I was there. And then the, the next year, which is 2017, I went to the DPRK. I, I organized a delegation, uh, and there were four of us which who went, and we were there for, I think, eight days. Uh, we were able to see a lot of the country and meet with workers and farmers and doctors, scholars, students, librarians, pretty much a real broad cross-section of North Korean society, although we didn't have any meetings with religious leaders, although we did we did meet a Buddhist monk, although we didn't have an incredibly long conversation with him. It wasn't a sort of formal talk like the other talks were. And then I was also in South Korea again uh, in April, and I was there actually during the historic April 27th inter-Korean summit between Kim Jong-un and Moon Jae-in. And I was there again for the 8th International Korean Forum, which was hosted this time by a group called the People's Democracy Party, which is a newly constituted party, which formed uh, just before Park Geun-hye was overthrown. And it was the first real sort of independent left party formed during the, the candlelight movement. Which, which overthrew the, the pot government. I'm sorry if that was too long. No, it's great. Um, 
good to have a, a lot of like context to think in a short like personal history. Um, I guess like we could do a kind of historical backdrop here for the DPRK, but I think actually instead we should just refer people to a really great interview that you've already done on some of that, Derek, with uh, Tyler Hill over at the podcast uh, Gods and Ghosts. That's a really nice um, kind of overview, and uh, we won't make you repeat all that here. Um, instead, uh, maybe we can sort of slowly like ease our way into kind of the history of Christianity there. So. Um, I'll, I'll set up, I guess, a question here. So I was kind of reading about um, the DPRK recently and Christianity there, and I, I was surprised to learn that before the war, Pyongyang was known as the Jerusalem of the East because uh, there were so many Christians living there, um, like real hotbed of missionary activity. And uh, Kim Il-sung, the, you know, the first uh, leader of the DPRK, came from a prominent uh, Protestant family. So his grandfather was a pastor and his mom was a Presbyterian deacon, um, and in some of his writings, he talks about how, like, he advised party members not to distrust Christians, and he says that he received some aid from them. Uh, but, like, does any of that kind of sentiment sort of appear in Korea today? I mean, it's been a really long time since that was the case. Uh, and how much of maybe, like, a communist Christianity is either still present there or maybe still present in certain, um, like, uh, South Korean uh, people or, or movements that you've uh, interacted with? Yeah, so I, I can't speak definitively to any Christian communism or communist Christianity in in North Korea because while I was there, I didn't I didn't really discuss that with anyone, and I think next time I go, I definitely will. Uh, and in in South Korea, however, when I was there in April, I went to visit a peace church that is inside the demilitarized zone and i met with a a pastor there who, who has this church and it's uh, he took us to to the border fence and interestingly he said that usually we wouldn't be able to to hear each other and he has a hard time uh, preaching at the church it's a very small church, but uh, he has a hard time preaching there and really having any conversations because of the anti-North Korean propaganda that the U.S. blasts over the loudspeakers there. It's just it's so loud, right? Because it's 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 intended to reach uh, North Korea, and so he he took us to to you know different spots in the demilitarized zone, the spot where the first soldiers from the north crossed over into the south on June twenty fifth of nineteen fifty. And while we were there, we also uh, we we were with a man named An Hak Sap, who was a former prisoner of conscience in South Korea. He was actually a Korean People's Army soldier. He was captured during the Korean War and finally released in the early 2000s. He served 43 years in prison for basically for being uh, a communist. Uh, he was he could have been released at any time if he had just signed a document uh, renouncing. A North Korean ideology known as Shushe, which we can talk about, but he never did that. And and he said, I I asked him, you know, if he would ever want to go back. It was his 90th birthday. And he said that I came here to liberate my country and I won't leave until I do that. And mm -hmm. so I think that that sort of gives you maybe something of a snapshot as to the relationship between the the peace and the reunification movement and the, the communist movement and at least one segment of 
the Christian community in South Korea. Of course, that you know, Christianity is really everywhere in South Korea. That that is not. I don't think you know. I don't think I would not say that's the dominant trend of Christianity in South Korea. But nonetheless, there is a this relationship. Cool. Well, getting into that relationship a little bit more. Um, very recently, a few weeks ago. Uh, the World Council of Churches, which is a big ecumenical Christian organization, uh, issued a press release about a pretty historic meeting between the Korean Christian Federation, um, which is uh, the Christian organization in the DPRK, and the National Council of Churches in Korea, which is like a, you know, the it's a, a big thing, a big part of Christianity in, in uh, South Korea. Basically, the press release states that the organizations uh, want to work together to, uh, quote, uh, what they said, pursue peace. Um, which is pretty interesting, uh, kind of given the picture that people usually paint of Christianity and uh, the DPRK. So the point of the meeting, according to the World Council of Churches, was to celebrate and affirm like the recent uh, peace treaty um, as a transformational expression of inter-Korean leadership for peace, prosperity, and reunification of divided Korean people. The West has a long history of being bad with Korea, like extremely bad, if not just bombing them, uh, you know, propagandizing. Um can you tell us a little bit more about what this piece might mean and why it's helpful for Christians to be a part of it? Yeah, well, the I think right now it's a really historic moment, for one, because of the significant realignment of the balance of forces in the region, where everything that's happening on the Korean Peninsula and also between the United States and the DPRK is really propelled fundamentally by by the Korean people themselves. And of course, the Korean people have always been, you know, agents and actors in, in shaping their own history and world history. It's a sort of new development that really they would be able to force the United States to into some sort of dialogue against not only the wishes of really like uh, basically against the wishes of everyone in the u.s except for except for a really small segment of the of the ruling establishment right i mean all the mainstream democrats are lined up against it all the newspapers are you know went into overdrive to denounce it it's not ending all the military intelligence you know officials who are always anonymous you know are leaking things to sort of uh denigrate the the peace talks and so on and so forth but you know it's it's a real it's a it's a historic event in that, but it's also it's not new. This is you know there's, there's a there's a deep history of the peace and reunification movement in Korea. Uh, it's not the first time that the two leaders of the two different states have met face to face. Won't be the last time, and in fact that's a real asset that they have right now is that, you know, they're not starting this from scratch. There is uh, there's precedent to this. There's a lot of groundwork has already been laid. So they're not sort of starting from square one. And I think that as a global, you know, religion and, and, you know, perhaps you can speak more to this. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts because you're the experts on, or not, you know, I don't know if you call yourself experts uh, to me, you are an expert on Christianity uh, and you know a lot more than I do, but it seems that as a sort of global religious phenomenon that is interested in various ways in peace and justice, that a movement like that or a phenomenon or a grouping like that would be really key to this 
conflict, which is definitely not relegated to the Korean Peninsula, but is, you know, truly global in shape. Yeah, I mean, it does seem kind of like, uh, it seems like it would be a non-controversial statement to say that, like, Christians who follow a guy who says that he's the Prince of Peace, like, would want peace. <laughs> like, it seems like that would be non-controversial. Uh, but it is weird that, I mean, the United States, for example, is a, you know, majority Christian nation and also a, you know, primary aggressor in that relationship. Uh, and, and so is the Christianity that ex- that it exports to places like um, you know, the Republic of Korea and elsewhere in the world, right? Uh, which I think is one kind of interesting thing we've tracked on this podcast before is, uh, you know, in many cases, communist states, I think, have been way, way too quick and too uh, unnuanced in their uh, disciplining of Christianity. But at the same time, uh, you can understand why, right? Because Christianity is ironically and, and paradoxically the, uh, the language of imperialism in many cases. But I think it's really important um, to kind of emphasize that you know christians are a part of this peace movement uh there are even lots of people i know in south korea who um like members of church hierarchies who've been speaking about uh the importance of peace like a lot of catholic bishops are talking about how it's like a really good thing and etc so yeah it's weird that christians especially in the u.s are i think a little more uh their opinions are more determined by their nationality than their religious participation or something interesting yeah um so maybe we could kind of uh transition though to to working a little bit through seeing the unique character of what christianity is like in the dprk um because it's really hard to find like good resources on life there and i think that's one reason i've been uh happy to follow some of the stuff that you've you know tweeted and written about derek um and christianity is especially difficult because it's a it's a very minor religion um in the dprk now for a number of reasons uh but we did find a couple of really great articles by a korean scholar um dayoung ryu uh i don't know if i'm pronouncing that right but if we're not, you can you can write us. <laughs> so one's from 2006 called Fresh Wineskins for New Wine, A New Perspective on North Korean Christianity, which is published in the Journal of Church and State. And the other is from 2007 called Religion, Politics, and Church Construction in North Korea, uh, published in Theology Today. Um, so did anything really stick out to you after having visited the country, Derek? Maybe like reading some of these uh, more scholarly narratives and kind of seeing how that links up with you know your travels and visits there? Yeah, I want to thank you for sharing them with me, encouraging me to read them. And I, I really think that it would be great. Uh, I know that at least one of you or perhaps through the Magnificast uh, Twitter has shared at least one of these. But it would be I would definitely encourage people to to read these because they're really good uh, sort of overviews, I think, really helpful for for clarifying the different approaches that scholars have taken to the study of Christianity and uh, the presence of it in the DPRK and the sort of reasons for its ebbs and flows. One thing I I didn't mention that I should is when I filled out my visa application to the DPRK, I had to agree to not bring two things into the country. One of those things was pornography and the other thing was a Bible. Those are the those are the two restrictions on on what I what I couldn't bring into the country, and so there definitely is a suspicion of those who would sort of proselytize to the country, it, foreigners who would specifically right. And and one of the recent political prisoners who was released was was imprisoned for really provocatively leaving a 
Bible at a nightclub in North Korea, um, basically sort of asking to be arrested to 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 raise the issue of I, I don't know what I guess how you can't leave Bibles in nightclubs there, um, which apparently is a big issue. But um, in any case, I think that you know I mean on one hand you could hear that fact and you could say, oh, well, that's because like, you know, they hate Christianity or whatever. I think a lot of it has to do with the, really the national character of the country and the their overarching philosophy, which is Juche, which is translated often, most often as like self-determination or self-reliance is also translated as subjecthood. So in other words, sort of being the, the, the master of one's own destiny. And for uh, Juche is really uh, uh, emphasizes the abilities of the Korean people to, to shape the course of their own history and to determine the contours of their life and the, uh, the organization of society, and so on and so forth. It's been through many different iterations uh, with different sort of emphases and so on. But I think that um, one of the approaches, historical approaches that was mentioned in the in the article Fresh Wineskin for New Wine is what's called the uh, revisionist approach or imminent approach, which seeks to understand the ebbs and flows of Christianity in North Korea from within North Korea itself. And while, while the author sort of doesn't settle for this one and, and proposes his own account, I think what's I think it's you know a really helpful place to begin, which is you really have to understand, you know, the act of uh, signing something saying I'm not going to bring a Bible actually really has nothing to do with Christianity uh, in in a sense, right? Or at least very little to do with it, and much more to do with uh, the the desire to protect the country and people from um, sort of, or rather, yeah, from uh, from outside interventions. Um, and I think that that's you know that's a really key sort of organizing principle uh, in North Korea, right? Anyone you talk to, you know, it's, it's really important that, that things be done sort of, you know, in the Korean way without outside influence. Um, and so I appreciated that about the, um, about the scholarship was it, you know, is really trying to understand Christianity, North Korean Christianity as North Korean Christianity and not as like a global Christianity that then goes into North Korea. Yeah, I think that's really cool. And and when you frame it that way, I think it makes a lot more sense in the sense that like, okay, so, so I mean, Juche has like a, a nationalistic side to it that, that makes sense, you know, when you think about it, but like uh, the, the quote global Christianity of the West has a pretty nationalistic character to it as well, or at least like a, a Western hegemonic character where like, um, I, I really... I. I do understand why you wouldn't want like a, like a Westerner bringing like a Bible into the country uh, because you could potentially do a lot of bad stuff with that actually. Yeah. And it wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> right. Yeah. And another thing they say in, in the uh, article that, that uh, Ryu says is uh, like, there are Korean Bibles uh, in the DPRK already. So in that sense, it also kind of makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like, we don't need your Bibles, right? We, we can do this ourselves, just like we've done literally everything else ourselves. Yeah. Um, 
Well, that's cool. That's a helpful, I think, um, a helpful way to think about it that kind of gets around some of the really, like, pearl-clutching uh, that Western Christians have about the DPRK. Um, well, uh, another really valuable thing about that Wineskins article is how Ryu uh, rehearses different stories about Christianity in the DPRK. He says, uh, most people tell a narrative of decline, persecution, and then, uh, like, the state, you know, just arbitrarily makes its own version of Christianity that's somehow permissible. But uh, Ryu says it's important to consider the possibility that there are actual Christian communists in the DPRK who aren't just instruments of, like, a cynical state ideology, but they that want to, like, contribute a like to a communist community in, like, a Christian way. Um, how do you think those narratives about Christian decline and persecution reflect wider anti-communist depictions of the DPRK and the people that live there? Yeah, it's interesting because I think that the there's like almost a perfect mirror to say that any Christian communist in, in North Korea or any churches in North Korea are just there because they're tools of the state to, either for propaganda purposes or whatever is just another move that deprives the people in North Korea of any agency whatsoever. And that seems to me the sort of the primary continuity in any in so many narratives about about North Korea, those that are hostile to it or critical of it in any way is that the people there just don't have any agency or ability to think for themselves or to think critically or to take an independent position or, you know, whatever. Um, and so I appreciated the the critique of these narratives and so you know for those who haven't read the article uh in general the the sort of narrative flows like this that as uh, dean said earlier at one point korea was the what is it Jer the jerusalem of the east or the jerusalem of the orient yeah, yeah, yeah. and there were like you know, I think 1,400 churches there. Uh, there were 70 churches alone in Pyongyang. And then when the Korean, well, after the, when the division of Korea happened and the North uh, became socialist, that it was really eradicated. And then there was uh, sort of some, some remnants that were left and that sort of organized. And then, you know, really like, and then they, the DPRK sort of took advantage of those for its own nefarious purposes in the 1970s and 1980s. And that's sort of like the, I don't know, I, I think, correct, what do you think? Is that sort of a fair reading of the traditional uh, perspective in the remnant model? Yeah, I, th yeah, I think so. so. Yeah, um, okay. So Ryu points out very helpfully the antagonism between socialism and Christianity as it's played out has complex characteristics and it isn't just like a perfect mirror. Like it isn't just like a total response to the political developments within the DPRK that it also has its own internal dynamics. And that, uh, you know, the North, North Koreans sort of official take on Christianity has been pretty flexible. And the reason why there aren't that many churches in the DPRK is because the United States destroyed them all in the war. Uh, there wasn't a single building left standing that was more than one story, and there weren't any churches left. So they so they bombed all the churches. So really, you know, if you want to blame the the lack of Christianity in North Korea on anyone, it would have to be the mm. uh, the United States and the United States military. Um, but you know, one thing I think that's really understated about North Korea 
is just how pragmatic the leadership actually is. Um, I mean, it's true that ideology is incredibly important in North Korea and everyone is schooled in, in idea, ideology and and whatnot. But if you look at like the history of North Korean uh relations with any country it's they're incredibly pragmatic and that's how they were able to be, uh, rebuild the country after the war without becoming subservient to either the soviet union or the people's republic of china which almost all other socialist states were uh, really all of them were with the exception of, of cuba and so they were able to to do this themselves and it's because they're they're just highly pragmatic and they really if you want to sort of help the North Koreans, I mean, they don't turn away any allies or any friends, right? Um, it, they just, they don't do that. They can't afford to do that. So it makes total sense that they also wouldn't turn away Christian allies inside the country or outside the country. Uh, and so because also churches served as bases from which to launch operations during the anti-Japanese guerrilla struggle in the 30s, in the 40s, there was a respect for for that, right? I mean, and that wasn't forgotten. Same thing with with uh, with the Buddhist monks, and that's and that's why there are still Buddhist temples in in North Korea. That's one of the reasons is because they helped fight Japanese colonialism, and like anyone who was going to fight Japanese colonialism is 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 a friend, right, to the to the Korean people then and now. Um, that's really the way that they see it. And so I, I think that I would sort of want to highlight that. Um, and I think that this is one instance of of that pragmatism. Like, yeah, I mean, I guess that if you I mean, obviously, there's different ways. And we've talked about this before. And you've talked about it much more in depth than in other shows, right, about, you know, of reading Marxism and 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 Marxism and Leninism and Kim Il-sungism uh, about and the beliefs about religion and about Christianity in particular. But I think really what's what's more important is like is the practical implications of a particular uh, manifestation of something as opposed to a broad sweeping statement that is operational for now and all of eternity yeah for sure uh, I think that's a really helpful reminder too right that um, there's something about uh, Christianity that is reasonably dangerous um, to these kinds of uh, communist projects that we've been talking about. But there's also something that's like, uh, I mean, it can really be a blessing to its country um, or to, you know, the, the its neighbors, but maybe in a more Christian language, um, provided that, like, they actually want to do that, right? And uh, I think uh, it's really great um, that this uh, this article in Scholar really challenges all of that. Um, maybe we could talk a little bit about the, the church construction article because um, we haven't gotten to that yet. Uh, I, this article is so fascinating because, so the other one is maybe like a kind of media critique or, um, you know, historical critique. So it says here's a couple narratives about Korean Christianity and here's a, a different one, right, that assumes that maybe there are Christian communists who want to be that way, right? And the, and the state welcomes them as friends, as you were just saying. Uh, but the, the church construction article is fascinating because uh, it also talks about the politics around like building churches in the DPRK. Um, and it talks about how that they play a, a political and a religious role. Um, so the article, uh, 
says that the the churches were mostly built because of outside pressure from people visiting the DPRK asking why there weren't churches. Um, But the government said uh, to those people um, that there weren't churches, as you said earlier, Derek, because America destroyed them all. (laughs) And uh, like people were accustomed to meeting in house churches. Um, So the state was kind of like, well, this is how Christians choose to worship now. Why should we do that? Um, but the state did end up building churches anyway, uh, and when they did that, though, they, they welcomed, you know, believers in the country, and then they also sent state agents to monitor the situation. So you get this kind of, like, um, you know, on the one hand, openness, and on the other hand, suspicion, because Christianity is a, uh, it's a link to, you know, the rest of the world, um, for better and worse, you know, for aid and for uh, ideological sort of subversion, I guess. Um, so how can we think about, like, the complexities of kind of being open to and suspicious of that open Christian worship uh, in a place like the DPRK. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad you, you're bringing up the question of the construction of churches. I think it's so interesting that, like, you know, the story that, that you just told about this, where, like, outside people are like, well, Christianity looks like churches. And so, therefore, if you don't have a church, you don't have Christianity. And they're like, well, that's mm-hmm. just, like, not our reality. Um and, you know, according to, to Ryu, that this is a primary reason why they actually built churches, that there wasn't this internal demand for it. Uh, it was really in response to outside pressure because this is what Christianity is supposed to look like. And it's like that's such a really a, a mapping on to this question of the broader approach to North Korea, which is like, you know, humanity looks like X, Y or Z. You don't look like X, Y or Z. Uh, you know, or really any kind of humanism or, or imperialism. So therefore, right, you're not human or you're not Christian. Um, and and so then once the churches were built, right, as you noted, there was sort of suspicion towards them because the state is, is acknowledging, like, that they're doing something in response to outside pressure. So they're going to, like, just like they're going to be really critical of me if I bring a Bible into their country, they're going to be critical of even themselves for doing something in response to outside pressure. So I think part of it is almost like a self-policing. It's not policing the people who are actually in the church so much as, like, uh, policing their own their own decisions, uh, which, which really, you know, it was, I mean, they— they built these churches in consultation with the church associations there, but it was actually, but it wasn't, you know, as, as we said, a grassroots demand that they were responding to was actually totally top down. So I think that's one way that I would, that I would sort of approach it. Um, And the other thing is that it does seem to me that there is, while the North Koreans are pragmatic there, you know, there is a there is a tension here between the worship of God and the loyalty and allegiance to the socialist project in North Korea. Because, I mean, you know, obviously, there's well, I don't know if it's obvious that actually it's totally not obvious. Although I wish it was. There's so much racist demonization and caricaturing of the leadership. And, and, and the, the relationship between the leaders and the people in North Korea. Uh, and I don't want to feed into that at all because there's re- real reasons for, I mean, one, because we should understand what it actually is. And also we should understand the historical and material reasons for that relationship. But it is nonetheless true that the leadership and the party 
are viewed almost like a, I mean, shoot, I wish I could, maybe it's the leadership and the party and the army or something like that. That's the Holy Trinity in North Korea. Uh, they're each sort of manifestations of, of, I don't know, Zhuge or the, of socialists, you know, the path towards socialist construction in North Korea. Um, you know, where like, you know, the leadership really is seen, I mean, people don't pray to the leadership or think that they're gods. Um, but there is a profound respect for them in a way that's unique. I mean, it, it's consistent with other, you know, Eastern and Asian and I mean, actually other uh, societies where there's like a respect for elders or, you know, this kind of like bowing and so on and so forth. But, you know, it, it is a little bit more, it's different. I won't say it's necessarily more extreme, but it's definitely different than that. Um, so, I mean, I, I do think that there is probably a, a concern that there could be mixed loyalties uh, between uh, loyalty to to God, or you know, probably more more dangerously, not loyalty to God, but loyalty to the church, uh, and the church as a as a distinct entity from the leadership or the party. But I guess a final point is that, especially with Kim Jong Un's leadership, there's a real openness right now in North Korea uh, towards the world and towards things that are new and different. Uh, when Kim came to leadership, he really wanted to increase tourism. He wanted to get more North Koreans traveling to other countries. He wanted to increase economic cooperation between with, with other countries. He wanted to establish, you know, all sorts of uh, ties and links to other parties and governments and and movements and. Really wanted to really wanted to open the country up, including uh, making even more special economic zones. And so, I think that there, you know, that there is a real openness. There's a real hesitation towards it at the same time, for obvious historical uh, reasons that that make a lot of sense, and also a desire to, you know, I mean, when you go to South Korea and North Korea, you know, there's there are many differences, but one is that you know when you when you go to North Korea, I mean, there's no white people. Uh, there's no white people walking on the street, really, and except for like me when I was there um, and my and my friends. Or uh, and there's no white people like on TV or on billboards, and nobody's trying to be white or uh, trying to trying to be American. When you go to South Korea, I mean, there's white people everywhere, and not just actual like bodies on the street, which oftentimes are military bodies, but there's, you know, I mean, there's so much Western culture and there's so many Western advertisements and it's just, it's so Westernized. So there's also just a real desire to keep Korea Korean. And because South Korea isn't as Korean as North Korea, it's even more important than North, that North Korea keep that uh, cultural integrity. Yeah, I mean, I guess it is kind of weird to think about Christianity involved in those kinds of nationalist projects because, uh, like, there is a real suspicion toward um, idolatry, uh, all that kind of stuff that would probably be easily mapped on, something like that. Uh, actually, uh, Matt and I were looking at, there's this uh, kind of conservative evangelical uh, group called Voice of the Martyrs, and uh, they, like, 
I don't know, try to track like persecution of Christians around the world, but it's like a very Western kind of thing. And uh, I found a Voice of the Martyrs for the DPRK. And what's funny is uh, they actually come up with a kind of similar uh, mapping of uh, Shuche ideology onto uh, the Trinity as you just uh, were hysteric. Uh, so e- even the reactionaries think so, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, you know, maybe there is something there. Like something there as like a, a kind of a fundamental tension between Christianity and like um, those kinds of uh, expressions of like devotion or something. I don't know. Uh, wh- what do you think, Matt? Uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know. I'm just trying to think through the whole the whole project. Like I I guess it just um, it is just really difficult kind of to sort through this because um, Western media does like play such a huge role in I guess just the way I think of the DPRK. Um, so just trying to sort out like what's actually true and like how to think about this is I think a real difficult project, uh, at least for me right now. Yeah. We should just ask some Christians in the DPRK, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, really. If only the United States like would allow us to go there right now, you know, (laughs) Um, I'm sure that I'm sure that, as soon as the travel ban is lifted, we should organize a delegation to go of, of socialists, of socialist Christians or socialists who are interested in Christianity and the TPRK. And, and, and uh, I'm sure that they would, they would accommodate that. Yeah. I think it's actually really important to strengthen this dialogue. And I guess the, uh, the world council of churches thing really sticks out to me as some, being something like important for Christianity or at least something that Christians in the West should pay attention to because Derek, like you said, the thing about like, you know, you can't bring a Bible into the DPRK is like such a, like an overblown thing. And I think the Christian church in the West, I remember like, okay, this is a really absolutely uh, wild thing, but I remember going to like summer camp um, when, you know, I was in high school and grade school and some stuff, Christian summer camp, and they would play a game that was kind of like capture the flag, but it was like, it was, I don't remember what the name of it was. But the idea was that you were, like, um, sneaking Bibles into, into North Korea. Like, that was the idea. Like, you'd run up and you'd try to put, you'd put a Bible in a book before, like, this, like, guard saw you from the wall. So, I guess, like, um, that it, it's, like, it's such a mythological thing in Western Christianity in the sense that, like, we, we even play games about it at summer camp. Or at least some of us do. Maybe, maybe that's a thing that no one else has ever done. Uh, tweet <laughs> us, please, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe this is my one weird summer camp, but I can't imagine that being true. <laughs> Um, but anyways, that's why, that's why this seems like so important to kind of like suss out these tensions between, um, the DPRK and Christianity, because there's just like a lot of mythology and a lot of like ideology, I guess that, uh, I have to fight through to even kind of like understand it at a really critical level. Yeah. And, and I mean, I do want to reiterate that I guess that the tension isn't between necessarily Christianity and Juche, but really between the church and Juche. And so I think that the question is really, what kind of church is it? Like, what kind of organized church is it? And that's why, like, that's another sort of, that's another explanation as to why it was with the construction of formal churches that there was then this, like, state surveillance of them, because then it's this organized thing that could be used to like mounts and and opposition and they could also be used to 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 network with hostile forces outside of north korea right in the same way that you know like the reason why there's not another political party in cuba is because it would immediately become the party of imperialism right it would immediately be like 
that's where the U.S. would go to, uh, you know, to spread its its dissent. And right. I mean, we know uh, there's a scholar, Christine Hong, who's written a lot about the sort of soft war tactics against the DPRK, how the National Endowment of Democracy has you know, is preparing for uh, what they call the day after. They're training all these, you know, North Korean defectors to to become the leadership of of the DPRK after the government's overthrown. And so, I think that the real, yeah. So just to sort of reiterate that the real tension is is between the church rather than Christianity. Yeah, I think it's also it's really interesting to think about those kinds of. Uh, dangers of international um, connection, but also the opportunities for them. Um, like if Christians weren't uh, knee-jerk anti-communists, uh, they could actually like genuinely help other Christians <laughs> and uh, other people. Um, like I was thinking in that uh, church construction article, um, there's this moment where they talk about um, the author talks about uh, a, a noodle factory and bakery that was built in Pyongyang using funds from uh, international Christians funneled into Christians in the DPRK. And then those Christians wanted to like build a public facility to like aid in food production in the DPRK. And that's so fascinating because like when money comes into many churches, for example, even in, uh, in Western countries, it's often not even used to say, make like a, a material contribution to your community, but it's used to say like, um, be like a bandaid for certain problems in capitalism, right? So you build like a soup kitchen or you build, uh, like you give money to, I don't know, like whatever, whatever number of, uh, humanitarian, like good humanitarian projects that are very important. Um, but not actually addressing, you know, the real like systemic issues. So it's fascinating that like these Christians of the DPRK got money from other Christians in other parts of the world. And, uh, they chose to spend that money in a way that they felt like would be like genuinely useful. Um, and it's like, why don't Christians see that as like an opportunity to learn maybe about how Christians in a different, uh, you know, political situation think about like how to make material expressions of their faith or something. Interesting. So all that to say, I guess, uh, I think you're right. We should organize a, some kind of Christian solidarity um, <laughs> delegation to uh, the DPRK. There, there was a time that people doing that all the time in Cuba. Like there's a big seminary there. Lots of Christians went there to hang out with them uh, or like Allende's Chile and stuff. So, yeah, uh, I don't know. Give us a call. <laughs> well, in light of this entire conversation um, and uh, everything that we've kind of laid out here, Derek, what can Christians do uh, in the United States and Canada to kind of be in solidarity with uh, the people and also the Christians of the DPRK? Yeah, I think, you know, those of us in the United States have a real responsibility to to fight for an end to the Korean War, which the United which has been going on for 68 years. And the United States has refused to sign a peace treaty. Uh, you know, every war has a beginning and has an end. And this, the war just has to have an end. And so uh, we really need to fight for the United States to force the United States to sign a peace treaty with North Korea, to normalize relations, to remove all U.S. troops from Korea, and to pay reparations to to North Korea and to South Korea for the dis- destruction that it's caused um, and South Korea, the destruction that it's, that its military occupation of the country has caused. And to really demand that the United States government respect and follow the wishes of the Korean people uh, as they as they pursue peace and reunification, I think that that's that's our primary role, and I think that we have a lot to learn in terms of in terms of peace 
from from the Korean people themselves. Yeah, that's great. Uh, well, thanks so much for that uh, benediction, Derek. Um, you know, now that you've been going to church, you've got this really good uh, new tool. <laughs> I know what that word is. <laughs> or at least I know where it comes in the program. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that is all that matters. Um, well, uh, it's nice to have you back as always, and kudos to you for holding on to your title. Vincent Lloyd was trying to come for it a little while ago, but uh, you've managed to hold on to it. So, uh, yeah, you're you're still the reigning um, reigning uh, most recurrent Magnific guest. Nice. With all due respect to Vincent Lloyd. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. Uh, thanks so much, Derek, for coming on the show. Looking forward to hearing back later on, I guess, about the follow-up visit to the DPRK, checking out some churches. Um, that'll be fun. Next uh, time Derek's also, on the show, he's going to be like a pastor or something. He's going to ascend all the way up the rank. That's right. Uh, Archbishop Derek Ford, um, the first married bishop in the Catholic Church, uh, really waiting waiting for his papal call. Um so that'll be nice. Uh, and then uh, then Alex Jones will be right. There will be a Pope that's finally just like Lenin. So can't wait for that. Um, if you <laughs> if you like what you heard at the podcast, you can support us uh, at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Really thankful for everybody who's donated there. Um, update on that too. We, we recently did like a, I guess, like a fundraising drive um, where we said we were going to send out some pins to folks who donated uh, by a certain time. So those are coming in the fall. I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, you can also pick up some stickers and stuff like that uh, if you're into that at redbubble.com slash people slash the Magnificast. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do that on the internet at Twitter at the Magnificast, on Facebook at the Magnificast, and uh, you can email us at the Magnificast at gmail.com. Uh, we'll see you next week. And as always, the music in the podcast is provided by Amoria Armstrong, and the outro will be The Illogical Spoon. Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord.